All right. Welcome, gentlemen. I have the honor of having two guests today. We have Talbot G, the CEO of Hardy, which is Heating, Air Conditioning, Refrigeration Distributors International. And we also have Alex Ayers, Director of Government Affairs for Hardy. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks so much, Rob. Good to see ya. I'd, yeah, uh, it'll be fun. Yeah. So Talbot, it looks like you're back in the office. Is that correct? Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm one of those stubborn ones. I, I've, I've been in here the most, but um, <laughs> we are slowly phasing our team back in, and by the end of June, we'll be a hundred percent in, raring to go, ready. To I go. am so happy to hear that, and congratulations. Yeah. That's great, great. That's really, really good news. So, let's just uh, let our listeners know, if you don't mind, Talbot, who Hardy is and who your members are, real quick. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we're the Wholesale Distributor Association in the industry, HVAC and refrigeration. Uh, we uh, are predominantly North America. We're, we love to boast that we have a member in every congressional district in the U.S., uh, which is fantastic. But we also have members internationally beyond Canada. We have a very strong and growing, thriving Mexico division that is starting to uh, include more and more of Latin America as well. Uh, and then we have a spattering of members who are, who are across the pond in the other continents, too. Uh, a lot of times they'll join because this is the best way to get access to not only other distributors, but also the U.S. leadership of the manufacturers. So associate members are the manufacturer members, pretty much every brand you can think of there that, that uses wholesale distribution. And then, of course, we have a strong group of um, uh, manufacturer representative uh, member companies and uh, really an important piece of the of the supply chain. So we're glad and happy to help you guys out with this. Congrats on on doing this cool forum. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, honestly, we were latecomers to the Hardy game. Uh, our agency, KGG Consulting, joined fall of 2019. I'll tell you, it couldn't have come at a better time. My first ever meeting was actually in New Orleans in December of 2019, and it was a real eye-opener. I had always heard about meetings because I had been a rep myself for a long time, but just never attended the meetings and always hearing the guys come back and how charged up they were. And I definitely can say uh, the connections that were made and the speakers you had, you guys do a wonderful, excellent job on those annual meetings with all the... Uh, collateral you guys have. So let's talk a little bit about that. So your membership, they're again, heating, air conditioning, refrigeration, OEMs, manufacturers, distributors, uh, and reps primarily. So around that trade, the information you gather is, is self-reporting, correct? Your distributor partners give you information about where they stand economically. Talk a little bit about how you get a pulse for the business. Sure, sure. So um, uh, we do what's called a monthly sales trends report. And so that is collection from about 240, 250 distributors every single month, giving us um, five key KPIs for that month and the running 12. And so that's how we're able to really assess distributor performance in terms of top line sales, inventory values, sales per employee, um, uh, day sales outstanding, how quickly customers are paying, uh, gives us a fantastic snapshot and we're able to slice and dice that by region, geography, size of company, and, and even at a higher level, a little bit into segments too, um, commercial, residential, refrigeration, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's what we do every month. We also collect and report out, I should say, we collect every month and then report out monthly unitary sales as well. So those are actual units that distributors are selling to installing contractors. HVAC, we do dabble into some refrigeration, some parts and supplies as well, too, that we capture in that. In fact, we're in the midst of growing that program because we want to be able to better quantify repair versus replace 
dynamics in the industry, especially with some of the big disruptors we have coming down the pike that, that Alex will certainly talk about. We want to be ahead of the curve, be able to really see when the industry dynamics start to change, customer behaviors start to change because of regulatory impacts or whatever the case may be. But, you know, all this data collection really became most valuable this last year because of all these inventory supply chain issues. We were able to really quantify, you know, what is the shortage or lack of product that's necessary in the market. And now in this degree, how much above average inventories our distributors are carrying. So then we get some sense, depending on how demand reacts, you know, uh, is there any kind of a bubble or are we still going to be playing catch up for 12 months or so, right? Yeah. And you know what? I am extremely impressed and truly appreciate after we, what we went through last year, which we'll come back to in a minute, how you actually communicate that to the field and the members. I mean, you must have like five monthly newsletters, right? I mean, I'm just trying, I think I lost count, right? I mean, you got the data driven newsletter, the market intelligence, yeah. thermostatus, and then Alex has his government affairs. I mean, no. you can't ask for better being a member and getting that communication and I really did appreciate that. Like I said, I think we joined in time before last year, because if you take a look at where we were a year ago, right in the state of uncertainty and in the midst of everybody, just the doors closed, I really found comfort in those newsletters. Were you getting that kind of feedback? Yeah, I tell you what, that was, I mean, not just for us, but for everybody, the hardest six weeks us and our team has ever had, but it's because we felt so such immense pressure to try to sift through the clutter and really boil down to what was important for our members because there was so much uncertainty and there was so much noise out there and there was so much information, but you didn't have time to really curate it. So we felt it was our responsibility to try to curate that for the members. And frankly, we threw the challenge out to the team. We said, if an organization like Hardy can't show its value during this type of a crisis, then it probably shouldn't exist. So we really threw the gauntlet down. Um, Alex was an absolute Superman with all the stuff with PPP and everything. I mean, it got to the point where organizations well outside our industry was leaning on Alex and his knowledge because he learned it so quickly, so thoroughly and had so many ins within SBA and other agencies that really helped us get insights that you couldn't find on the cover of the Wall Street Journal or something like that, right? So yeah, we absolutely, we probably quadrupled our content output during that time, but we tried to do it responsibly, efficiently and packaged in a way that it really, it only took you a minute to read and understand what the action item was or, or what the important bit was on it because the members were, were scared, nervous, and running full speed. So kudos to the members, by the way, in the whole industry. I mean, good grief. First off, the innovation, the adaptability, and then turning on a dime from being literally cement sneakers to rocket ship tied to your back, right? Like amazing job by the industry, even though we're still working through some of this stuff, I hope we never lose that context of exactly how dynamic our industry and our channel was during that unprecedented kind of disruption. Here. So let's talk a little bit about that. Cause I was going to ask you, you know, how did last year, 2020 change Hardy? Mm -hmm. Obviously you just touched on a big part of it. You quadrupled the amount of content information. What else do you see changing or what has changed and what do you, where does Hardy go from here? We got maybe almost a little lucky. We had actually just started implementing a new strategic plan, which was intended to shift us to more of a content delivery, content creation, content delivery type uh, organization. And COVID just put it on steroids. And just basically, we, we accomplished what was supposed to have been a five-year plan in six months, basically, you know, wow. and 
but the coolest part about it is it really justified the plan. So the plan itself was a really sound one and has worked out really well for us. So what does that mean? We've invested a lot more in our infrastructure in terms of content, content delivery. We launched a brand new website that is individually curated based on what members want to subscribe to and what they want to hear about. We added staff, both in terms of our market intelligence and, and market research side of it, as well as a lot of online learning, communications, all that sort of stuff. So it, it really did. It, it just accelerated our plan, validated our plan, but it showed us that, that we need to be the ones that our members can really trust to give them the most important information when they need it right away so then they can go make actionable decisions and then hopefully win in the market. That's the plan. Yeah, well, kudos to you guys because you deserve it too. So Talbot, just take a step back and say why you're giving a shout out and kudos to your distributor partners and members. What did they do that really stood out at you last year? What did you see that you say that? Yeah, well, first and foremost, we always have known this inherently, but it was really proven during the start of the crisis, how much distributors sincerely care about their employees and their customers. That was their number one concern, even when they were freaked out about whether they were going to sell another piece of equipment or if they're going to be able to keep a branch open. They were most concerned about keeping everyone safe and healthy. No one disregarded this. They all took it seriously. They talked and they communicated with their employees well and came up with their each individual solutions to how they were going to navigate through all this. So that's the a number one thing. I thought that was tremendous and, and brilliant. Um, the, the second thing was they were innovative. They found cool ways to try to figure out how to service the customers. And by the way, they took very seriously their recognition as an essential business. It was very important to them that they kept doing their jobs, regardless of what the outside circumstances looked like, that they got what people needed to keep food fresh, hospitals running, people warm, cold, whatever the situation may be. They took it very, very seriously. So we saw companies, maybe they didn't have the best technology infrastructure, but they figured out a way to fulfill orders through text right? Like how cool is that, right? Or they found a way to shift people to more of an inside role so they could field requests in any format a customer wanted to send it to them. Email, text, fax, whatever, you name it, whatever, and just get the job done. You had salespeople who were carrying product into the beds of trucks for people. You had executives and, and CEOs, you know, doing all of that or being the one person on the counter because they didn't want to risk their employees being on the counter, but they knew the customers needed it or wanted to help, right? So just the, the best people, we always tell new employees, the coolest part of our job is how cool our members are. And this just proved it in spades. What a great group of people they really are. So what I noticed was uh, there was an efficiency that had to be created, right? Because the doors were not open, but the distributors are getting orders because of mm -hmm. being essential, their guys being essential. And they found a way to, whether through storage lockers, will call, you know, yeah. leaving stuff outside behind the condensing unit and you come grab it, you know, uh, my end too, I know I'm really, really impressed. And think about again, a year ago where we were economically, right? We were as a trade down double digits, uh, huge. huge double digits. And we rebounded through the rest of the year and talk about how impressive that is with doors being closed. Where did we end up at the end of 2020? We were positive. Uh, oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Absolutely. there was that efficiency uh, and it was just, it was incredible to watch, honestly. And I, I admire it. Like, I think the way you do too. So Alec, talk a little bit about um, your role. You probably got busier, didn't you? <laughs> a little bit. A little, yeah. For a little while there, there was a lot going on last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Let everybody know what it is you typically work on and working on. You know, there's different areas within government affairs. Explain to everybody what it is specifically, the areas in which you you cover and report on and seek information. Yeah, so government affairs really it goes the entire scope of what happens in Washington, D.C. It's everything from uh, what's the administration doing, specifically the White House and all their staff. Then you have the regulatory agencies. Primarily, we deal with EPA and Department of Energy, um, but we also have Department of Labor and Department of Transportation that we deal with. So following all of that, while at the same time talking to Congress, trying to get Congress to do what we want them to do or stop them from doing what they want to do that maybe hurts our industry, all of that happens basically on a daily basis. So, you know, our advocacy efforts really are everything from the regulatory agencies all the way to individual members of Congress. I think probably in the last week, we have sent letters to specific members of Congresses from specific distributors, while also doing general comments on behalf of the entire membership to EPA. So it's a constant messaging battle almost. Not only are we messaging to government and trying to influence them to do something on our behalf, but then also telling our membership what are we doing on their behalf uh, for them and making sure that they understand what's coming just because of how much influence, especially in our industry, between DOE and EPA, that they can very much change, you know, almost overnight by proposing a rule, what the future of the industry is going to look like. And you also cover, you know, government funding that relates directly to our yep. trade. Along with the EPA, it goes the refrigerant side of the business too, right? Exactly. There are phase outs proposed tax changes and tax laws that Congress faces, right? I mean, that, you cover quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And even code development, right? Mm-hmm. Forthcoming yeah. code. How uh, do you keep really up with the, it? The codes has been new for us. Uh, code development really has not been a issue for Hardy because you know we're box in, box out generally as a business. We don't manufacture it. And we don't install it. Where generally the codes impact that. So this year, because because of the changes that are coming, we got more involved in the code process. We actually now have a code consultant. His entire job is attending code meetings and knowing what the code changes are. And so we've now, working with him, worked on everything from our future storage issues for mm-hmm. A2O refrigerants to just now finding out that certain states have these electrical requirements for ground fault interrupter circuits that are having a massive problem with HVAC systems because their variable power trips mm-hmm. the circuit and suddenly the, the homeowners without air conditioning and they don't know why. So dealing with trying to make sure that those changes don't impact our industry and, and getting those fixes as fast as possible. So codes has been, well, fascinating. Also just so much more work because it's so much different than government affairs. Government affairs has a playbook to it. Yeah. Codes feel like the wild west there's no script uh, at least to me. <laughs> yeah know, there's no yeah. script you just they they start working and then you're like what happened okay so curious we have a code consultant yeah no i'm so happy to hear that because on my end and being an indoor air quality guy i guess my first thought that comes to mind is you know we don't have a fresh air code in this country like canada does right as, as no. a whole you know it goes state by state county by county however you know it's just it's not prevalent you know predominant majority of our country do you see anything have you heard anything about fresh air at all any squabbles any just insights i think everyone wants an indoor air quality standard um and i think a lot of the healthcare spaces have really wanted it for a very long time um just looking at particulate matter and everything else there but for the way our code process works, we need a standard for the codes to adopt. And that's where within an industry, if we can come together and develop a single standard for all the manufacturers to use as to what indoor air quality really means, how we test the equipment to meet that standard, then we'll start seeing that adopted into codes. But that's a probably a five-year process. It's just as 
the codes at minimum are a three-year process once you have a standard. So, you know, it's that amount of time to come up with that standard and then we'll have something. But I think that's something that's desperately needed just because of how you know, we've learned over the last year. Indoor air quality really has an impact on overall health. So we need to make sure that we understand what that means and how we meet a standard. You know, it makes me very happy to hear you say that because it's a, a constant discussion on our end with our manufacturers. And, you know, it's, it's terrible because you could even have a code written but then it's not really, there's ways, you know, to get fresh air in the house without actually being efficient. <laughs> it's just the craziest, craziest yeah. thing, you know? Uh, so I'm happy oh, to yeah. hear you say that. I'm glad like to explore more about the person you brought on staff. Have you not actually announced that yet? You guys, as far as that, the person. Yes. Uh, okay. His name is Jim Kenzel. Uh, so he's, awesome. he also works with the American supply association, which is basically a partner distributor group for plumbing side. Uh, so a lot of our members are actually members of both us and ASA. So I think, uh, Jim's written several blog posts now on the code process that I hope folks are having a chance to read and kind of learn how we are having impact in a place that we've never had an impact before. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. And Rob, with this IAQ topic, you know, we actually went to the manufacturers and to ASHRAE and really pushed them hard. So they put a working group together to try to expedite some of this on the IAQ front. Um, as you well know, there's a lot of products that kind of came out of the woodwork um, for IAQ over the last year. And distributors had no way of truly evaluating them, right? So, and then of course there was a healthy skepticism that came into the marketplace. Sure. So for you guys and your agency, I would say whatever you and your teams can be doing to really know the technicals of these products and being able to articulate the effectiveness of the product compared to whatever else might be out there. That's really what the distributors need the most right now. I'm happy to hear you say that. And it's a lot changed with us as being manufacturers reps last year. I mean, we did record training with distributors last year. I mean, I was constantly this time last year, I, I think I lost my voice. I can't even tell you how many times just from all the virtual training that we do. Thank God we were able to do it virtually. Right. Uh, all those late early mornings and late nights getting in front of contractors. And you're right. It's a healthy skepticism. And I like the way you say that because the technologies have to be vetted, third-party tested. Nobody in this industry wants to be the snake oil guy, although they're there. There's multiple ways to handle indoor air quality. We preach this all the time with our distributors. There's no one silver bullet. You have to approach it by the occupants and the building itself because they're all different. They're all different and there is no one silver bullet. And I appreciate you saying that because I appreciate your, your advocacy on your behalf for that this side of the industry as well. I think it's hugely, hugely important. And there's a lot of gray area, right? I mean, there is a ton of gray mm -hmm. area. So with that, Alex, back to you real quick, IAQ being at the forefront of everybody's mind last year, it got Congress's attention by way of money delegated through, I think first initially the CARES Act and then the American Rescue Plan dedicated to helping schools, I think secondary, primary and secondary education. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what we saw from money delegated to HVAC equipment. What did you see play out? And actually it's been over uh, three different bills. Um, we had that very first at that time, it was a lot of money, and now it's considered by far the smallest package that we did, just because I don't, you know, it was so early in the pandemic, we had no idea how broad that scale was. And it, it created what's called the Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund. And so this was a, at that time, very small bucket of money, but it went out to schools and said, you know, the entire purpose is to not only improve indoor air quality, but improve sanitation, uh, and then also assist in distance learning. You know, most schools just didn't have uh, laptops for students, things like that. So we started off there. And in that point, it, HVAC was not explicitly mentioned, but it was still a possible use of the money. It was this kind of generic in, improving the indoor air quality, improving sanitation side of it. 
Then the CARES Act came along and introduced HVAC specifically as a as one of the 12 stated purposes. It said, you know, you've got $89 billion now across uh, was 16,800 school districts. So that's a, a fairly large chunk of money for each school district. But at the time, they were still kind of in emergency mode. They were going, okay, we need Lysol wipes, we need plexiglass dividers, or we need to get you know laptops to students. And so we were having a hard time getting you know, folks to focus on, you know, you have these HVAC systems that are pumping air through your schools. And the problem is HVAC is very much an invisible part of the school building and the infrastructure. You don't see it. You occasionally maybe feel the breeze from it, but you don't really notice it's there until it breaks. And Mm -hmm. so in their minds, the HVAC system wasn't broken, even though it wasn't as good as it could have been. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do we make sure that schools understand what the role of HVAC is. And partnering with uh, AHRI, the manufacturers, produced the, the five steps for healthier schools. It's an actual infographic, of, if I'm not mistaken, right? Exactly. You guys created an infographic? Awesome. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so that is on the website. You know, it, it's something that you can take to schools. ASHRAE as well has entire set of information on the nuts and bolts of the engineer is going to understand how do I improve the HVAC system? What upgrades do I need? Well, then... As we went throughout the school year, people were still focusing, okay, what's the thing right in front of my face? How do I spend this money most efficiently? Well, then the American Rescue Plan came along and really doubled that amount of money. We're now talking about $190 billion that doesn't have to be spent within one year. You have until 2024 to get it spent. So with that amount of time, now I think is when we're going to start seeing more of this money actually get spent on the HVAC upgrades. Not only are we now in summer where there's not students in the building so they can you know, contractors can get in there and work on them, but there's literally just so much money being thrown at them. Schools are saying, how do I spend this money? And HVAC is an obvious way to do it. They just have to get to the decision maker and say, here's what you can do. We have the products. Let us know what you want to do, basically. I just learned something from you. So I'm so happy to hear you say 2024, because originally, I think, was it the CARES Act that had to be used in 2021 or by the end of 2021? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was actually kind of weird. So it was like the state had to give the money to the school by the end of 2021. But then there wasn't like really a deadline on the school to do it. But the assumption was you're going to spend this very quickly. If they didn't spend yeah. it, it just went back to the federal government. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because if there was any money left in the state coffers, the federal government took it back. Once the state gave it to the school, it was like, spend this quickly. But we don't really have a deadline to you, but if it's in our bank account, we have to send it back to the federal government. Then they said, okay, no, now by 2024, you have to do this. I think that was part of oh, the man. pandemic emergency. Let's get this out there yeah. coming back to, okay, let's get, do good policy making. But now that we have this deadline, I think that puts the pressure then on schools to say, okay, we do have this bucket of money that we have to get spent now. What can we spend it on? Because we've bought every Lysol wipe in the entire country at this point. Right. So <laughs> right. I think the HVAC systems are now coming to the top of that list. See, I think in terms of a mechanical contractor, right? So how do I put myself in a position to grow my business and help school districts out? It starts with the school system. A contractor can't go and apply for the money, nor can an engineer, right? I mean, it has to be the school district. The school district has to, and I use apply basically in air quotes because- okay. The way the school gets the money is based on what's called Title I funding. This goes back to a bill that was passed over 40 years ago, and it's how essentially federal funding gets passed out to every school district. There's an equation that they use based on number of students in certain categories. They figure it out. And then so every school, as soon as the money was passed, knew how much they could get. So then there's this application process, which basically says you're willing to take this money and spend it. Some states say, ask, what are you spending it on up front? Some states say, tell us what you spent it on by the end of the deadline. We'll be good. That's been the most frustrating thing is the speed at which 
some states very quickly got the money out there. Some states took, I, I want to say forever, but it's finally getting out there. That's, I think, the hardest part is that it does go through a multi-level kind of bureaucratic process. And sometimes that's very slow. But once mm-hmm. the school has that money, they can spend it. And so then it's finding, is it the mechanical contractor? Is it the engineer? Is it the architect? Who has the relationship with the school district? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I think this business, along with a lot of other businesses, is all about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so it's finding who has the relationship to influence the principal or the superintendent to say, okay, we know you have buildings that need HVAC upgrades. We know how to do this. We'll spend the money for you. Have you guys considered, and maybe you've already done this, and again, I always think in terms of the contractor, that's usually where my mind is because that's the guy that, you know, he's on the, he's in the trenches, right? The question is, have you come up with a toolkit like put something in one spot for this money and how it flows. Or if a distributor was smart, they put all the links to the money and all the websites where all the information is in one spot. Have you guys thought about creating like that? Or have you done something similar to that? Yeah, we did a webinar. I'm trying to remember when we did this webinar. It would have been early this year mm-hmm. uh, where we partnered not only with AHRI because you know manufacturers have very much an interest in this, but also had a couple of contractors come on and tell us how they've done school projects in the past. You know, how did they get the in with the superintendent because they've done these prior to the pandemic, things like that. So I I would definitely go back uh, and that webinar recording is on our website. I will. um, Because we're dealing with not only 50 states, but 16,800 school districts. Yeah. Putting all of that together in a single place is very difficult. The one resource that we have found, and I didn't want to just blatantly steal it from them, but it's the National Council of State Legislatures. They put together a resource with all of the individual state departments of education, access to the application links there, um, because that's very much in their wheelhouse. I didn't want to you know, just blatantly basically steal their content. So I've been telling people, if you just basically look up the National Council of State Legislatures, SSER, that's that elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund, you'll find this content. Excellent. Thank you for that. Yes, we'll share that. Two quick questions that I want to come back to Talbot. So we just talked about schools, funding for schools specifically mm-hmm. and secondary education. Have you seen any other money set aside for actual federal buildings themselves? You know, all the, think about all the federal property out there, including museums. And, you know, have you seen any money dedicated to that? Uh, anything uh, so earmarked? Is there government service there's, GSA there's, or something? Yep. Uh, GSA has got uh, a bucket of money that they're spending on things on, but also what's been interesting is, so the CARES Act and then also the American uh, Rescue Plan involved money for states. It was essentially these governor's funds and the governors were told, okay, you now need to come up with plans to spend this money. And some states, Ohio is the one that comes to mind, uh, was the first said, we are going to put out grants for small businesses uh, to upgrade their business facilities. And so I don't remember exactly how much money Ohio did, but um, it was you know, several million dollars was put out there for businesses to apply for funds. You know, that allowed folks to upgrade that wouldn't, again, I, to me, HVAC is very much an invisible part of your infrastructure. Mm-hmm. If it, until it's broken, you don't think about it. And so this gave some light to that, that, hey, there's ways to make these indoor air quality upgrades. And the state is willing to subsidize, you know, part of that upgrade process. So part of that is just seeing what every state did. Not many of them did it, but I know Ohio is one of them. So that's publicly in public spaces. Have you Mm -hmm. seen anything in terms of homeowners, you know, becoming aware last year, I think homeowner recognition of the air they're breeding now than there ever was before. Have you seen anything amongst any of the states or federally that uh, earmarks any kind of money for home upgrades or or incentives even for home upgrades to improve air quality? When we get to the homeowner, uh, the incentives become tax credits. Um, okay. 25C is how we refer to it in, in the tax world. 
we have a lot of weird numbers and letters in the tax world that, that mean things only to those people that understand it. But 25C is a homeowner tax credit for HVAC upgrades. We've been trying to improve it actually because it's a one-time credit in your lifetime of that house. So gotcha. we want to make that something that can be annually. You know, you can continuously upgrade your systems as technology gets better. Uh, a lot of it's based around energy efficiency, but frankly, if you have an older system, the energy efficiency also then comes with, you know, better systems like filters and things like that. So there's a double benefit kind of in the world we're living in. Yeah, it would be super nice if there was a credit for purchasing a mechanical ventilator. <laughs> Think about that, right? One of the most mm -hmm. expensive pieces of fresh air components or, or IAQ, one of the most important was fresh air. And what, what a tax credit that would be if we could get like a, a, you know, ERV or an HRV credit. So there's food for thought, Alex, as you're going forward with. Your oh, yeah. Development. <laughs> we just, um, yeah, we just went through a whole hearing in the uh, Senate Finance Committee on improving every energy efficiency uh, tax credit and basically molding them into one. And we said, OK, if you're going to touch 25C, you have to make these improvements because, you know, folks aren't being able go. to take advantage of this the way they need to. So we'll hopefully see that move sometime later this year as as. Taxes generally are an end of the year process. This is the habit of how DC operates. Another comment, just feedback. I really appreciated. There was an automated letter you sent out, I think about a month ago, that it was a template letter to our elected officials. It was based around what a proposed tax law or tax. Uh, yeah. So uh, a lot of talk in, in DC right now is about infrastructure. And the definition of infrastructure being used is, is very broad. It's everything from the roads and bridges you traditionally think of, airports, bridges, you know, the traditional surface transportation, and then also airports, but also broadband and, uh, you know, a lot of other kind of what we call soft infrastructure. It's, it's things that if we improve upon them, they help the economy grow. Uh, and then the wish list gets even farther into some things that maybe is, is it just extra spending? Uh, priorities that are being put forth by Democrats that maybe won't be in, enacted in final law. And so what we're looking at now is something in the neighborhood of about a trillion dollars in spending on infrastructure, everything from really that hard infrastructure that is roads, bridges, airports, uh, through to broadband and some of these other priorities, and trying to make sure that, you know, looking forward, we have the ability to get these upgrades in place. It's about, I believe it's eight years of spending they're looking at. The top line is about 1.2 trillion. And figuring out a way to get that passed. But the biggest thing in, in DC is right now it's almost tribal. It's Democrats versus Republicans. It's the, the worst stereotype of how DC mm -hmm. operates. And so finding that bipartisanship to get that done is, is the big hurdle right now. You do fly-ins typically every year, correct? Yep. To, Our so next we... fly-in will be May uh, 16th and 17th of 2021. Uh, so we have that scheduled really excited for everyone to come back to DC because hopefully by that time Capitol Hill will be reopened again. Um, right now it is very hard to get a meeting in person. So most of my advocacy work is happening the same way we're doing this right now. It's through yeah. Zoom. That's why I have this microphone basically, uh, is to, you know, make sure that we're communicating well with the Hill. But once that Hill reopens, we're absolutely looking forward to getting folks back in DC and, and building those in-person relationships that I think has helped us so much at the beginning of the pandemic because people knew who we were. Yeah. Uh, when they know who you are, they'll listen to you. Yeah. Well, keep up the good work, my friend. You're doing excellent. And again, I appreciated that 
template that gave me a template and direct access mm -hmm. to my elected officials was perfect. It was perfect because I happened to agree with what the letter was stating because it was to the benefit of our business. So it was perfect. Keep mm -hmm. doing what you're exactly. doing. So Talbot, we had a virtual party meeting last year. That was one of the changes, right? So we did a virtual. I kudos to you guys. That was an excellent event. I talk about it all the time because I appreciated the Orange Theory guy coming on between sessions and <laughs> do a little stretching exercise. <laughs> I talk about that all the time. You did a wonderful job. Um, one of the other really useful pieces of information and reports that you guys did, you guys hired a survey company to go out and survey contractors last fall, mm -hmm. correct? It was like mm -hmm. over 400, I'm gonna say, I'm guessing, I think it was over 400 contractors. I use that report all the time with our reps, I really do. You know, what you asked and the information you gathered was tremendous. And I actually made slides out of the key takeaway slides to use with our rep groups, but it highlighted not only what was happening last year, but bigger picture stuff about what they appreciated and really, we have to respect the contractors and what they're thinking and believe. Those are our ultimate customers outside of the homeowners. Those are our guys that we need to trade it to. I noticed a couple of things. I'd like to have you hear, hear what you think. I'll just read it to you real quick so everybody knows what I'm talking about. So one of the questions was, when selecting a distributor to purchase from, please rank what's most important to you. Uh, obviously, product availability, pricing, delivery service, equipment manufacturer brand, technical support, outside sales presence and communication relationship. Uh, warranty counter number nine training provided training was huge and then location so those were the top 10 mm -hmm. but you went on and you guys you had the company drill down to what is it else that you saw and what i noticed was because again we talked a little bit about this earlier the efficiency that was created out of last year by not having the buildings distributors open we were forced to do things a little bit differently less foot traffic right is a huge deal because there's a lot of sales that are done with ancillary items going in and out mm -hmm. Do you see that changing the, the way we do business now? Do you still see that continuing on going forward? Like, so less foot traffic, it seemed like the contractors thought that might be the way they went. And how is that going to impact our distributors with having less foot traffic? Yeah, great question. Uh, first off, you're talking about our voice of customer research. That's part of our annual state of the channel report. And by the way, we're actually expanding it yet again. And we're also try to grow uh, and have more of the commercial contractor voice also incorporated. And next week we're launching our brand new first ever voice of contractor advisory council. Oh, wow. So we had 20 plus distributors, non-competing coming in from all over the country to help us take the next step with this research and wow. what do we need to learn? What do we need to do? So yeah, we're doubling down on this area. This is really important for us. But uh, so listen, one of the things that I think came out of 2020 was the stores that found a way to reopen and welcome customers back in ended up with an advantage over those that chose or were prohibited from reopening fully and welcoming customers back in. So the analysis really right now indicates that the contractors really value that ability to come into the facility, to interact with the counter staff, to interact with people, answer questions face-to-face. -face. So I, I think actually, if anything, 2020 reinforced the wholesale distribution model. There are going to be tweaks. There obviously is going to be a little bit more uh, commerce done digitally in some form or another, um, but there is undeniable retained value of the interpersonal relationships coming into the stores and, and being able to touch, feel, and see product. It, it, it still matters. It's still important. It does. And you brought up that relationship of, hey, so, do, you know, distributors have outside salespeople, territory sales managers, yeah. right? One of the things that came out of that survey that I harp on the most with our guys is 
the role of that salesperson is more important now than ever before, right. because if there is, let's say less foot traffic, or we're doing things more digitally speaking, that relationship becomes even more key. And if the territory sales guys realize this, they'll take that opportunity and further develop those relationships. So distribution can't go away, right? I mean, and I guess that would be a good question for you. How do you see the internet sales going forward? How does that change our traditional role of distribution right. in your mind, Talbot? So one of the biggest misses of 2020 was everyone assumed this was going to be a, an explosive accelerant towards e-commerce just because of the nature of 2020 and the shutdowns and the lockdown. And the data just simply didn't support it. Um, the growth of sales through e-commerce grew at the exact same rate as it's grown for the last however many years you want to look back. It's still growing, don't get me wrong, and it's not insignificant, but it's not like it grew by multiples of percentages over historical rates. So I think there's some distributors that are probably breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief that if there was ever going to be a disintermediation event that might take place, it's forcing branches to shut down. And that's not what happened. It, in fact, it reinforced their value and, and everything. So are we still going to see distributors continue to invest in e-commerce platforms, digital fulfillment and digital ordering? Yes, absolutely. Do we feel like if you don't have it done today, you're going to be out of business next year? No, absolutely not. I completely disagree with that. So um, really interesting to watch and see how this has gone. Uh, our products are unique. They're a little more complicated. Every solution is a little bit unique. It's not a pure commodity. So it needs hands-on. It needs to be talked through a lot. And frankly, we're talking about a replacement rate on a good year, a little above 7%. That means 93% of it is repairing something that's probably been out there for mm -hmm. 10 plus years, right? So yeah. that's kind of a hard thing to translate into a pure e-commerce type model. And, um, and look, I think it's our industry is the better for it. I think it's going to make us in the long run smarter, faster, leaner, but also more technically adapt because you still have to know how to answer the technical question when it comes right away, right? So it's not, you can't just turn that off and say, oh, go to the rep website. No, it's just, it's, our industry just doesn't work that way. It doesn't. And I'll tell you again, back to the to Hardy meeting two years ago in 2019, two of your speakers really stood out at me. It really made me feel good about being in this trade. I came charged up, you know, A, if you look at the overall economics of the country and where it is, even from a housing standpoint, we're 4 million houses in the hole right now. I mean, that's a good sign for the trade, all trades really, right? But ours in general. So to manage, you know, residential new construction, the add-on stuff, you need people, you need brick and mortar, you need to move the product somewhere, you need to move it in and out of somewhere. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, honestly, I think there's bright spots for us all, I think. And, and kudos to you guys for keeping that information and keeping those speakers in front of us. I want to come back kind of final thoughts here. Alex, what would you say uh, we should be looking out for going forward into next year? First of all, let's do detrimental. What are some things we, we should really watch out for this year that might be detrimental to our business and, and keep our eyes open for? Is there one thing that stands out at you going forward? Yeah, I would say the, the thing that stands out to me the most is, and this is really based on where you live in the country. If you are in the, the DOE South or Southwest regions uh, for regional efficiency standards, you know, and how long we're looking at inventory from the point of, you know, when you put in the order to receiving it could have a major impact for the South and Southwest and how much inventory you have left at the end of 2022. Because on January 1st, 2023, if you don't have equipment that is certified to meet that new energy efficiency standard, you can't sell it. 
uh, it has to be installed by the end of the year. So, you know, these lead times on inventory could have a major issue if you're not paying attention and see something show up in your warehouse, you know, towards the end of cooling season. And now you don't have an opportunity to sell it before January. You now have to find a way to get rid of that somewhere else in the country. And then that being in the North region, uh, don't get me wrong. We're trying to actively fix that. So it's not going to be an issue, but yeah. right now, as the law says, that's going to be an issue that needs to be dealt with. Gotcha. And despite a heat wave, right? I mean, of course we get a heat wave in that those regions right now. Though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Hey, to me, the, the biggest worry is suddenly say July, August of next year yeah. is unseasonably yeah. cold. And Very, we just yeah. don't get rid of inventory. Right, right. That is the biggest worry for me right now as an industry. Mother nature, man. There's no way around mm-hmm. her. Uh, and then finally, Alex, what's one of the bright spots we can look forward to in the next 18 months or so? I would say it's all of the the research that we're going to have coming out. We've got a new learning management system being put on the website, but part of that will be education specifically transition to A2L refrigerants. So later this summer, we're going to have a couple of new classes. Uh, first one of them was going to be for folks dealing with A2Ls prior to 2024, and then another class dealing with after 2024 and the, and the changes in the fire code. It's going to be a way to make sure that we are ready for this transition that's happening over the next five years, really the next 15 years, but really in the next five years, we're going to see a lot of change there. And it's a way to make sure that we're ready for it. Because uh, to me, change is only a problem if you're not ready for it. And if by being ready for it, we can take advantage of it and, and continue the growth that we've seen over the last several years. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing, Alex, to stay on top of that for us. We really do appreciate that. Talbot, what would you suggest to a distributor looking ahead? Uh, what, what, if they're not doing it now and given what we went through, what would, is there anything that stands out at you that you would say to them, just keep an eye out for this, or you might want to consider looking at this to help yourself and help your business. Is there anything that stands out at you as far as suggestions for them? Uh, yeah, there's a few things. Uh, first off, just from a business strategy standpoint, that voice of customer report also showed exactly how wide the gap is getting between large contractors and medium and small contractors in terms of how they want to do business, what they value from their distributor, what they need, what they expect. So uh, first off, if you're not doing some form of customer segmentation process now, you need to be. And if you have been doing it for a long time, are you making sure you're updating it with these new inputs of customer expectations that research like ours is putting out so that it's not based on assumptions from five years ago, but it's it's being updated going forward. So, so that's the first one because the one size definitely does not fit all. And you as a business, do you know who your core customer really is? Is it the mid and small guys or are you really tailoring to those larger contractors? And if so, you need to shape your business differently or accordingly. Uh, Secondly, we've been on this bandwagon for a while about talent, talent development, recruitment, retention, all of that. This battle for talent is only going to get harder, not easier. And again, we're a little bit of that unknown industry, right? So most people don't Mm -hmm. come out of school, be it whatever level, and look for us, right? So you've got to have a sales mentality when it comes to your talent. And then once you do that, Do you have the whole infrastructure in place that's actually going to make your place of business somebody wants to stay and grow a career in? Or are they going to view you transactionally, get what they can out of you, and then move and jump to another spot? So we really, over the last several years, have really doubled down on helping distributors be just as strategic with their talent and talent management as they are with their sales, their inventory, their supplier relationships. And and those who do it are, are winning. They're benefiting. They're retaining at a better rate. They're uh, recruiting at a higher caliber. 
right? And they're probably more efficient even in their comps too. So that's that's the next big thing. The kind of the old days of, of throwing somebody into the warehouse and then hoping 20 years later, they become a senior leader for you. you. You can't bank on that. You have to have a plan. You have to be disciplined and you have to be able to measure and compare performance quickly because it takes so much longer to refill positions or to restaff if you need to. Excellent. So what do you see your, your bright spot going forward the rest of this year and into next year? What do you see? Uh, how do you see the trade ended up? Well, look, if you were a manufacturer questioning two years ago, the role or the value of these distributors, and you were really thinking about an alternate strategy or maybe trying to go all online or whatever the case may be, um, if you're still in your job, then you are absolutely changing your course of thought on that. I mean, this shock absorber in the industry that is wholesale distribution proved its worth better than anyone could have ever expected last year. And now it's not like the uncertainty just ended. It's just a new type of uncertainty for the next 12 to 18 months. And guess who's weathering all of that again? It's the shock absorber in the industry, the wholesale distributors. And, um, you know, talk about strategic relationships. The days of opportunistic customers, contractors, that's long gone, right? Like those yeah. guys who shopped and bounced around and moved for a penny here and there, they're the ones who can't get product right now, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm not building my business around them when I don't have all the product I need, Good right? Point. And Good same point. thing for the distributor and their supplier relationships. Those distributors who treat those relationships strategically are open with both data and communication were the ones who got more access to product than those who treated it very transactionally and would also jump for two cents on a product or something like that, right? So all of it came down to understanding what a strategic relationship really is and then jumping in with two feet until you had a really good reason not to be in it, right? So you, you get in tight. And so now instead of contractors maybe going and shopping around to five, six different supply houses, we keep advocating you better have a, a one, one A, one B, right? And that's, uh, or else you're going to get left in the dust because no one's going to build a business plan around you when they can't trust you and they can't believe that you're going to be there uh, when, when the tide turns. Well said, Talbot. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. So last question for you, Talbot. So where would a potential member for Hardy go to for more information? So they listen to this, they get interested. Uh, they're either an OEM or associate or actual distributor. Where would you tell them to go? Absolutely. So hardynet.org is our website and it's a brand new website. The team did an amazing job completely revamping, rebuilding the site. But the coolest part is when you're a member, you can go in and register on it, log in, create a profile, and that gives you an opportunity to subscribe to all the content feeds that you care about, right? So say the market intelligence and research is really important to you, talent development is really important to you, government relations that, that Alex does is really important to you. You can subscribe to just those things. And then your webpage, every time you go in and are logged in, will be curated to what you ask to see. So all of the most relevant information in your content streams will show up first. Secondly, they built it to be arguably one of the best search engines in our industry. It's kind of like if you took YouTube and Google, smashed it together and limited it exclusively to HVACR wholesale distribution. And that's what they created. So the cool little thing up in the corner, the search bar, you just enter in a term like A2L or inventory. Anything we've ever put out, video, blog, reports, whatever, will come out 
and you can have all that there in front of you. So you're preparing for your next board meeting, strategic planning meeting, uh, sales planning meeting. You can be, go crazy with those search features and get content for that is still relevant even if it was published two years ago. But now you don't have to know where to find it. You just search for it and boom, there it comes. So really, really cool resource. I'm so proud of the team for what they did with that. And um, good Lord knows I have no idea how in the world they did it, but I, <laughs> I know I use it all the time. That's for sure. But um, yeah, that's where I would point him to first and then go from there and we will make it as easy as possible for you to get as involved or, or engaged as you like. Thank you for that. Gentlemen, both of you, thank you so much for being here with me today. I Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to see you at the Summer Social in a week or two, whenever it's coming up, I know. But I, I do look forward to seeing you guys at the annual meeting, which is in Palm Desert, I believe, right? In That's right. Yeah, Desert. registrations will open next month, right after 4th of July. And I would say everyone book your hotel room, especially early, because uh, we're going to have basically every pillow that hotel has under our block. So uh, Awesome. It's good to be back in person, isn't it? It'll be great. It'll be great. Refreshing. 100%. Looking to hanging out with you guys. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time and looking forward to uh, good things coming out of Hardy coming up here. This is great. Thank you. Rob, congrats on this. This is a cool forum that you're doing for your customers. I appreciate it. Thank you both. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, guys. All right.